This is a production of the Z Talk Radio Network. The views expressed and opinions given by the individual hosts and their guests do not necessarily reflect those of Z Talk Radio, its affiliates, or sponsors. Wow. It's dark. Well, let's have some light on the subject. Put on your critical thinking caps and please refrain from hugging. It's time for Dimland Radio with your host, Jim Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons. Hello and welcome to Dimland Radio here in the Talk Radio Network at ZTalkRadio.com. I'm your host, Jim Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons. Remember, I'm not really a doctor. I just play doctor online. Once again, I am recording in my room, my art room, my studio, whatever you want to call this. Uh, and I am once again recording on a Saturday. Uh, this past, you know, I normally record on Fridays. I know I say that a lot. You guys know this by now. You've been listening to the show quite frequently, haven't you? Uh, I listen to it, on, or I record it on Fridays normally, but. Uh, I work a, for a janitorial service, and this Friday we were swamped with work. We had a total of uh, six properties that needed to be covered, one of which we don't have a cleaner for at this point. Uh, the other five uh, people had taken off, and it was just two people who took off. One person takes care of four properties on a Friday, and the other person just takes care of one. Uh, the four property person is our, our one cleaner, one of two cleaners that work full-time. I mean, he's, he's full-time. The other one's close to full-time. Anyway, they both, uh, the, the one that does the one building and the one that does the four, wanted that same night off. They're both, they were both headed out of town. Uh, not together, pres- presumably, but uh, so that left uh, a lot of work to be done, and we just have the supervisor and myself. I had to fill, help fill in. Uh, there was also a property that I take care of on Friday nights. I had to do that as well. So I did two of the uh, of the four that the one fellow uh, uh, takes care of, and uh, and and then the one that I do on Friday. So I did three p- last night. So I got home. Uh, after 10 o'clock and I just didn't feel like doing a show so I thought well I'll do it again I've done it up here in my room before and uh, I'll do it again this week so that's two in a row I didn't want to skip a week a weekend uh, I do that I've been doing that too frequently recently and uh, even though I'm thinking about maybe taking one week off a month just to, just to have a weekend where I just don't have to worry about doing a show but I don't know. I still seem to want to do these things. So that's why I'm up here. I have some more corrections. <laughs> I I do corrections if I make a mistake, if I spot it, or if somebody else spots it. The very first uh, uh, or the very next new show that comes up, it might it might take a week or two before somebody lets me know that they saw they got something wrong, or it might take me that long before I find that I got something wrong. But the very 
uh, earliest opportunity on the show to take care of this uh, this mistake I do. Uh, I do that, and that's what I'm going to do right now. <clears throat> I had uh, talked, you remember a couple weeks ago I talked about, uh, you know, Joe and the hoe got to go. You know, stay classy. Oh, so classy. That's just, oh, the epitome of class. Ah. We don't agree with them politically, so let's denigrate them. Now, well, let's just let's just correct the error first before I go into anything else. Uh, I said it twice, and it's a mispronunciation of a person's name, and I want to get it right. Uh, so, and I, I think I did uh, within that same show. I think I did pronounce it correctly at least once, but the first two times I said the person's name, I said it wrong, and that person is uh, the vice president, our current vice president. Uh, they won. She and Joe Biden won. There's no fraud. They won. Anyway, uh, I called her uh, uh, Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. When it's Kamala Harris, the 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 emphasis is on the first syllable, not the second. So I wanted to correct that, and and it's I I I should remember that because there's this song by a band called The Nails. They were a band in the '80s, kind of a synth pop sort of band, uh, in which and you may recognize the song. I'll try to remember to link to it in the show notes so that you can check it out. Uh, the song is called uh, "88 Lines About 44 Women." You may recognize it because I think Mazda used it in its in its ads, or at least one ad. Uh, the The lyrics were changed a little bit because <laughs> the lyrics in the actual song get a little naughty. Mm, an f bomb is dropped. Uh, they get a little naughty. Uh, so uh, there's a line in the song where the guy who who is the singer, or the vocalist, he actually sort of just talks, sings the song. Just sort of talks it through and and hums a bit so uh, there's a uh, the the two lines that are dedicated to uh, a woman named uh, Kamala and that's how he says it he says Kamala Kamala who couldn't sing she kept the beat and kept it strong Kamala who couldn't sing kept the beat and kept it strong and so that's that should remind me that that's how we say uh, the vice president's first name uh, now I know, I know, I, uh, I, I, I don't often say the name of the 45th president of the United States. I don't often say his full name on here. Occasionally I do. Uh, usually it's followed by an er or ers for Trumper or Trumpers. Uh, I, 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 yes, yes, I know. And I, I often call him Fearless Loser. Um, because I don't deal, I don't feel he deserves any respect at all, none whatsoever, no respect, not for me, not on this show. Sorry, he had no respect for the office. He has no respect for the American people. He has no respect for the Constitution. He only cares about himself. I know there are people who are going to disagree with me. Uh, you're just getting that from the mainstream media and all that kind of the fake news and all that shit that they bring up. But I'm sorry, I calls it as I sees it. So, but I do occasionally say his name, and I want to make sure that I say it correctly. It's Donald Trump, right? Isn't that it? Oh, but incidentally, 
I've never called Republicans Rethuglicans or Repiglicans or any of the other variations of insult names that I've seen them called on, on social media. I ne I've never called them that on the show. Patricia will back me up on that. I call them Republicans. I think they're I think they're a lost party right now, and, and they, they just—they don't—they've lost me because you know they are completely uh, bass backwards when it comes to science. You know they want to—you know—it's just and they're and they're too owned by the religious right, too owned by them, and that those two factors right there. Not that the Democrats are much better with you know with science, but they're a little better. They're a little bit better with science. Uh, they're not perfect, but they but they are better, uh, and and you know there's a certain religious aspect to them too that you know makes me kind of go, eh, okay, what are you gonna do? Hail Satan or hail Santa? I might start saying that now. Hail Santa, <laughs> just because I'm a stinker. Uh, so anyway, uh, I know of someone who keeps referring to Democrats as demon rats. Just want to point out, I've never done the same thing. Uh, across the aisle. Uh, just don't do that. But, hey, you know, it's a free country, isn't it? Now, I made another mistake on that show, and this was a, this was a huge mistake. It's a huge one, but it's, it's a good thing that I don't have a huge audience, <laughs> because if I did, I would have been deluged. I would have been inundated. I would have been swamped. I would have been overwhelmed with people correcting my error saying you know damn how, you, you, you say you like baseball but how can you get this basic thing wrong yes exactly how could I get that basic thing wrong and what was that basic thing that I got wrong okay I was talking about the integration of baseball and how it was uh, uh, Jackie Robinson was the first black player to play in the major leagues since the gentleman's agreement went into effect in about 1890. It was not a written down rule, it was a wink and a nod between the owners of the, of the major league teams. There were 16 of them at the time. They agreed with each other that they would not put a black player on their teams. Prior to that, there were a handful that had played in the major leagues, but by, by 1890, they said, nope, it's not going to happen. Well, in 1947, uh, owner of, uh, of uh, one of the owners, Branch Rickey, decided it was time to change. He decided because it was wrong. He had experience when he was younger, I think when he was younger and, and working with a team in college, and there was a black player on that team and the, and the humiliation that that player had to, uh, uh, had to put up with uh, because of the you know, the racist nature of the country, uh, especially at that time. <clears throat> and uh, he that stuck with him. And he also was thinking, you know, we've got some top talent here that has not been uh, brought aboard. We could we can tap this talent. We, we, we ought to be doing that. Why aren't we doing that? That's That may have been part of his thinking. So um, uh, the mistake that I made was I talked about the team that was the first team to integrate. Which team did Branch Rickey own? And I said he owned the Boston Red Sox. I said it twice. I even wrote it down in my show notes. I wrote down Red Sox. And I, I know that's not right. 
<laughs> I knew with that going in that it wasn't right. I don't know what kind of a leak in my brain pan I have, but I, yeah, I, I couldn't be more wrong, to, uh, to paraphrase Pangelette, I couldn't be more wrong if my name was W. Wrongy Wrongenstein. I was so wrong, this is how wrong I was. Not only was it not the Boston Red Sox that integrated baseball, it was the Brooklyn Dodgers. Of course, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Not only was it them that were the ones that integrated the league, the Boston Red Sox were the last team to bring on a black player. Twelve years after Jackie Robinson took the field in 1947. I mean, I couldn't have been more wrong. So I want to go through this quickly. This is a list of the, there were 16 teams at the time. There was a National League and the American League, which is still the situation now. But there were 16 teams at the time. And so I thought I'd run through this list of the, of the teams and uh, when they integrated and who their first player, their first black player was. All right, so we start with the Brooklyn Dodgers. That was in uh, April 1947, April 15th. It was Jackie Robinson who played second base, although he started off on first base. Uh, next was uh, the Cleveland Indians, an American League team. Uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers are National League, by the way, if I didn't say that. American League team, July 5, 1947, was Larry Doby. He was a center fielder. Uh, then came the, uh, the um, St. Louis Browns, who would later become the Baltimore Orioles, I believe, their American League team. It was uh, July 17, 1947. And it was Hank Thompson, who was a utility player. That means he could play several positions. He, you know, first base, second base, shortstop. You know, he could, he's one of those players. Um, the next team to integrate was the New York Giants, uh, their National League. And that was in, on July 8, 1949. And uh, it happened to be two players that were brought on. One of them was Hank Thompson, who the uh, St. Louis Browns integrated their team with in 1947. Two years later, he's now being put on the team uh, for the New York Giants along with Monty Irvin. Monty Irvin was an outfielder, right field, center field, left field. He probably played a bit of all three. Next was the Boston Braves, which would later become the Milwaukee Braves and then move to Atlanta, and they are now currently the Atlanta Braves. Uh, on May 1st, 1951, no, wait, hang on. April 18, 1950, the Boston Braves, a National League team, um, they integrated by bringing in center fielder Sam Jethro. Uh, then on May 1st, 1951, American League team, the Chicago White Sox, brought in Minnie Minoso, an outfielder. Um, next was the first pitcher brought into, uh, um, well, it wasn't the first pitcher brought into the league, but uh, he, he was the first... Um, black player to integrate the, the Philadelphia Athletics, an American League team. On September 13, 1953, his name is Bob Trice. Uh, the Philadelphia Athletics, they moved to Kansas City for a time, and now they are out in Oakland. They're better known as the Oakland A's. Uh, the next integration was uh, the Chicago Cubs National League. This happened in uh, September 17, 1953. It was Ernie Banks. Ernie Banks was played shortstop, and he also played first base. Uh, Kurt Roberts, a second baseman, uh, he integrated the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates National League team on April 13, 1954. Also on that date, uh, and another National League team, the St. Louis Cardinals, they brought on Tom Alston, uh, who played first base. Um, the Cincinnati Reds, 
that same year, but just a few days later, National League team, they brought in uh, Nino uh, Escalera, a utility player, and Chuck Harmon, also a utility player. They brought on two. And then, let's see, then the Washington Senators, the team that would become the Minnesota Twins in 1961, uh, they were American League team on September 6, 1954. They brought in Carlos Paula. He's an outfielder. Uh, catcher Al uh, Elston Howard went to the hated Yankees, integrated that team, an American League team, on April 14, 1955. Then two years later, the Philadelphia Phillies, National League team, on April 22nd, uh, 1957 brought in a shortstop John Kennedy, uh, not the president. Uh, <laughs> no, obviously, because uh, he wasn't even president then. He didn't become president until 1961. So, yeah. Anyway, um, <clears throat> but it's not the same guy. Uh, Ozzie Virgil Sr., a third baseman, on June 6, 1958, he integrated the American League team, the Detroit Tigers, and then finally, on July 21st. 1959, uh, Pumpsy Green, a second baseman and a shortstop, uh, he integrated the Boston Red Sox and American League team. So that's how it went. That's that's you know, that's how they all set up. Um, 16 teams. It took 12 years for each team to finally bring in. You know, before all the teams had finally brought in. Uh, a black player. Uh, a couple teams might have said, "Well, you know, we want to we want to see how they work out. We want to see how they work out." Uh, but whatever the reasons, they they finally got it done by 1959. All the teams had brought in black players, uh, and 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 it was the Boston Red Sox that were the last. It was the Brooklyn Dodgers that was the first. Now the first black pitcher to pitch uh, to play in. Um, uh, in the major leagues was a very interesting character and I'll tell you more about him after I get to my break. You're listening to Dimland Radio on the ZTalk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. I'm your host Jim, Dr. Jim Fitzsimmons. I'll return after this break. Come on. Identification. You're listening to Z-Talk Radio Network. Operating frequency on ztalkradio.com. Do you believe in ghosts? Do you think Bigfoot is real? Do you suspect that your neighbor is really Valtor, leader of the lizard people of Bendar 3? Well, Dr. Dim doesn't, and he'll tell you why when you tune in to Dimland Radio Saturday nights, 11 Central, midnight Eastern on Z-Talk Radio Network. It's an hour of science promotion, pop culture rants, personal observation, and of course, skepticism. Join Jim, Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons, Saturday nights, 11 Central, midnight Eastern, for Dimland Radio on Z-Talk Radio Network. Remember, there's no hugging in the chat room. You're listening to Dimland Radio on Z-Talk Radio Network. You're listening to Z-Talk Radio, the number one choice for music, sports, news, and talk radio. So keep that dial locked to ztalkradio.com. <laughs> 
and welcome back to Dimland Radio here on the Ztalk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. I'm your host, Jim, Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons. Uh, that song that we just came out of break uh, to is Athena, and it's the band The Who from their album It's Hard, which was released in 1982-ish. Uh, and I will talk more about that in a moment. But first, there's a, that was the, the first black pitcher to pitch in the, in the major leagues uh, was he pitched for the uh, the uh, the Cleveland Indians? Which, by the way, the Cleveland Indians, after this season, are no longer going to be known as the Cleveland Indians. They've changed their name to the Cleveland Guardians. Uh, it's just seems like maybe we shouldn't be calling ourselves Indians. You know, I I don't know. Yeah, it's just, it's it's that's not the worst of the. Uh, ethnic-based names for teams. It's not the worst. Uh, but the Cleveland Indians had uh, uh, other aspects to that name. They, they had that little logo that was a very uh, racist, stereotyped-looking uh, uh, you know, Indian, like in the Cowboys and Indians sort of vein. And it was a real, you know, big grin on his face and all that. And he was called Chief Wahoo, I believe. I mean, that's not real. That's not real. That's not very. That's not cool. <laughs> and that's not. That's not being sensitive. <laughs> it's that's being, you know, an asshole to a whole group of people, isn't it? And and then the you know, collectively the, the the team would be called, you know, you know, other than being called the Indians, sometimes they'd be referred to as the tribe. Yeah, so it's just you know, okay. Well, Cleveland, the owners decided that's it got, it's it's time. I think with the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the heightened awareness uh, because of that, they're thinking you know it's the time. You know the people the the, the opinions are shifting. That's saying you know that's not so great. Will the Atlanta Braves follow suit? I don't know. I know that uh, Native Americans, a lot of them. We're you know, are very much um, wanting the Braves to change that name. Anyway, so the Cleveland Indians in uh, let's see uh, in July of 1948. This was a year after they brought in Larry Doby. They brought in a pitcher, and he was Satchel Paige. Now Satchel Paige, Paige is this you know he may have been the greatest pitcher ever to pitch in baseball. Well, you know, legend and myth kind of come up. This guy seemed like he was quite a character. Uh, the best records have him born, uh, being born in 1906. Uh, it's not absolutely certain that's when he was born, but it's pretty close. So if you think about that, if it is 1906, that's when he was born. You know, he had come up and he was playing for the Negro Leagues. He played uh, for the Kansas City Monarchs. Uh, he was, you know, and he played alongside uh, Buck O'Neill. So if you've watched the the, um, the the Ken Burns baseball documentary, Buck O'Neill is one of the fellows that contributes to, to that documentary, you know, giving stories and giving background and such. And he tells a story about a Satchel Paige uh, meeting up with a former teammate, Josh Gibson. Josh Gibson was considered to be one of the greatest hitters ever. He was certainly one of the greatest hitters at the time. 
And it, they, they, it was said that he was even better than Babe Ruth. Um, and they, so uh, Page and Gibson were both on the same team, but you know they, they said early in their career that uh, Satchel was saying to him, you know, one of these days, you know, you and I are going to be finding out who's better. You know, am I the better pitcher? Or are you the better hitter? You know, it's like which is the better player here? We're going to find out. And Buck O'Neill tells that story when the time came. I won't spoil it. I will link to it in uh, to a YouTube video of it. It's just somebody taking video off the TV. Yeah, I know. But it's a good story. Anyway, so he... Now, think about this. Born in 1906. Started playing in the major leagues. If that, if that birth date is correct, he would, be in, he would have been 41 or 42 when he broke into the major leagues. Now, that's an old rookie. Because he would have been considered a rookie. Uh, incidentally, that year... Uh, the uh, Cleveland Indians won the World Series. It was the last World Series the Cleveland Indians would win. Uh, they have the longest drought uh, of uh, a championship. Now there is the Seattle Mariners who have never won a World Series, but they haven't been in existence since 1948. So their wait has not been as long as the fans of the Cleveland Indians, soon to be Cleveland Guardians. So, um, Maybe with the name change. yeah. And they're going to have to wait another year because Cleveland did not do so well <laughs> this season. Uh, they're not making the playoffs. Uh, just like my twins aren't making the playoffs. The, now, there's a couple of notes here about, about Satchel Page. The last game he played for Major League Baseball was uh, September 23rd, 24th. 25? Uh, I'm not sure. 1965. Can you read my own writing? He was, he was 59 years old. He pitched, I think it was three innings. I'm not sure how many. He, he pitched. <laughs> yeah, three innings for the Kansas City Athletics. Remember, they were the Philadelphia Athletics. Moved to Kansas City for a time, and now they're out in Oakland, better known as the Oakland A's. Uh, his last professional game that he played was for a team called the Pennsylvania, uh, no, the Peninsula Grays of the Carolina League, which is, uh, I guess, a minor league or something like that, uh, semi-pro or something. But it, it was considered professional ball. Uh, the last game he, pe he played, uh, he pitched, uh, it was um, June 21st, 1966. He would have been 60, 60 years old. That's nuts. But uh, if you ever do watch the Ken Burns uh, documentary special, uh, baseball, well, I call it special. But if you ever watch it, you know, wait until they introduce uh, uh, Satchel Page because he's a he's a hoot. He's fun. He just had a he just said there was a there was a way about that guy. He was said to have said about age. It may be apocryphal. Maybe he didn't actually say it, but he says it's like you know, age is just uh, you know. Uh, it's just a matter of mind or something. If you don't mind, it don't matter. Something, words to that effect. I probably didn't get it exactly right. So, okay, I mentioned the who. Now, this is something that I do on this show. Um, anytime I either record the show on this particular date or it drops on ztalkradio.com on this particular date. 
and that date being October 2nd. So that's what this date, the show will be dated October 2nd. I'm actually recording it on October 2nd. It's a Saturday, so in a few hours it's going to drop on Z-Talk. <coughs> Santa willing. Uh, anyway, um, it was October 2nd, 1982. It was a Saturday, just like today. It's a Saturday. I went to St. Paul Comic, which was in downtown St. Paul, just about a half a block away from the St. Paul Civic Center, which doesn't exist anymore. On that site is the Excel Energy Center, which is the home of the Minnesota Wild, which is Minnesota's uh, professional hockey team, the uh, National Hockey League team. Um, so uh, I went down to St. Paul Comic on that date uh, just to pick up my comic books and visit with the owner and, and just kind of hang for a bit. And I was taking the bus in those days, and so I, I was just waiting for the bus to show up, standing out in front there uh, of the Civic Center. Right there in front of the Civic Center is where I, I catch the bus. And I got on, and in a stop or two, uh, a group of potheads came on onto the bus. And one of the potheads recognized me, and I recognized him. He was one of the potheads that I worked with. And he sees me, and he says, Hey, Professor! Which I think is what they called me in those days. Uh, I was smart. <laughs> well, you know, in that kitchen, in that restaurant that I worked at, it wasn't that difficult to be the, the smart guy. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> uh, he sees me, Professor! Hey, man, you going to go see The Who tonight? Because The Who were in town. You've heard of them. My favorite band of all time. Uh, they were in town for two nights. That night and the following night, that Sunday, they were doing two shows at the Civic Center. Right there in front of it. I, I have a vaguest memory of seeing the marquee and the, the, the who up there and the, and the dates that they were going to be there. I have a vague memory of that. I don't know if it's true. And again, memory's not videotape, and so most of the, I, I don't know how accurate this memory is, but this is what I got. And I, you know, I, I'm sitting there with a stack of comic books on my lap, and I said, nah, nah, I'm just going to go home and read my comic books. And uh, he says, oh, well, dude, you're going to miss out, man. Well, you know. I got home. My mom greets me at the door, sort of. I mean, I come in the house, and she says, oh, you got to call your friend John. Call your friend John right away. John says, call him right away. And I said, oh, okay. So I called John. And John says, man, I got three tickets to The Who. I don't know why I got three, but I bought three. Uh, Eric Johnson says he'll go. Do you want to go? <laughs> I said, sure. So uh, off we went. To, you know, he, he picked me up later. I had to call the place that I worked at, you know, along with the pothead. I had to call the place that I worked at because I had to work that night. I think I had to start at 10, 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. I'm not sure which. Uh, so I called and I said, hey, I've got a concert to go to tonight. I might be a little bit late. And they said, well, that's okay because the other cook, you know, there's two of us working for a while. He'll cover for you. No problem. It's okay. I ended up showing up a little bit late. And it turned out to be my last night working there. Oh, I didn't get fired because of going to see the Who concert. No, I got fired because they didn't think I was catching on as a cook and they didn't want to put me back down to dishwasher. Ah, what are you going to do? I was a kid. What are you going to do? So John picks me up. Eric's there. We head out. We go to the concert. Uh, we weren't real close to the stage, but you know, we could see it. <laughs> and uh, it was I, I, the things I remember of it. They had um, they had three spotlight arrays uh, on the main floor 
uh, one on either side of the stage and one straight back from the stage at the back of the main floor. And these arrays, uh, there was there were three or four spotlights on each of them that were aimed straight up. And what they would do is they turn around, and then the the spotlights would 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 move away from each other and move to each other, away from each other and to each other. They'd open and close like that, and you could see these beams of light coming up coming up because in those days people could smoke indoors, so the there'd be something for the spotlights to hit, so you can see the you know the columns of light going up for effect on certain songs. I remember thinking that was pretty cool. The other thing that they had uh, were were glow sticks. You know those glow sticks, a little plastic thing with a little liquid in there, and I think you, if you, if you twist it or something, or shake it or something, you can get the, uh, the, um, the liquid in there, the chemical in there to glow, to fluoresce. And so they had these glow sticks that people had them, and so people were just throwing them across, you know, up into the air, throwing them across from one side of the arena to the other side, and so back and forth, and that. And in those days, people had lighters. On them because you know everybody smoked. Uh, you know it was it was law back then. You don't know, but you know everybody was required to smoke, and uh, so they some wise person in concerts. I don't know why they started doing this, but at some point along the line, whenever there was a ballad song type thing being played in concerts, you know, like if Kansas breaks into dust in the wind, yeah, the songs like that, uh, or if the Who starts playing behind blue eyes. Then all the people get their lighters out because, you know, they all have lighters because everybody was required to smoke back then. Um, so they had to hold up their lighters and, and, and light and all these little little pins, little dots of light around the... the That's kind of a cool effect. It's, uh, years later, once uh, no one was allowed to smoke, uh, they, they, they give you these little, uh, it's a little uh, like a little flashlight that you just press a button and it, and it looks like it's a lighter. So you could do... They, they gave those things out at concerts. You could use those. Anyway, so... Somebody, some brilliant person got the idea, this is plastic on this glow stick. If I just melt a little hole in this glow stick, that glowing fluid in there will come out. And it did. And somebody threw it. So all these droplets of glowing liquid would come out. And some, like a stream would come out of one. You know, it's just, and somebody, they started doing that. Very cool. I enjoyed it. I thought it was cool. Okay. Um, <clears throat> then I thought... Uh, I, I, I found myself... These are the two memories I have from go, before going to the show. Um, would they play any solo stuff by Pete Townsend? And would they play the song Athena, which is the song that I came back out of, this, out of the break? Would they play Athena? Uh, because that was, their, that was the single that was getting played in the Twin Cities area um, uh, from that album, It's Hard, which was new at the time. And they were out promoting that album, even though this was supposed to be their last North American tour, their farewell tour. Well, we all know how that worked out. <laughs> they, they they kept tour, you know, they got back together and to start touring again. And uh, I think '89, they got back together to do the Live Eight thing. But I think in 1989, for the uh, I think it was then the 20th anniversary of Tommy, they got back together and, and toured, and uh, to help get John Entwistle out of debt because he he owed a lot of money apparently. <clears throat> He's the bass player for the band, in case you don't know. And uh, so, okay, uh, so that was, you know, those are two of the things I remember. And I think back of it now, says, I, I must have known, I, I, I knew some Who songs, and obviously I knew Pete Townsend songs, because he had a couple of tunes out at that time. He had Rough Boys and Let My Love Open the Door. He had those both out. And I, so I must have known who he was. 
uh, but I remember just being surprised. Oh yeah, the Who do this song? Oh yeah, they do this one. Oh right, this one. They played 23 songs that night, at least according to setlist.fm. It's a website which you can go to and you can look up your favorite bands and see what concerts they did and what their playlists were. I don't know if it's 100% accurate, but you can look it up. Uh, so I've got the list of songs that they played the night I saw them on October 2nd, 1982. They started off with the song Substitute, uh, followed up by I Can't Explain, then it was Dangerous. Um, that's a John Entwistle tune. Uh, I mean, it's written for The Who. Um, and I think Dangerous is on... Uh, I can't remember what album that's on. Never mind. <laughs> then, then was Sister Disco, The Quiet One, It's Hard, and Eminence Front. Those three songs were from... Uh, from It's Hard. That was their you know, little It's Hard chunk there. Uh, the, another chunk would come up later. Um, Behind Blue Eyes, that's where all the lighters came out. And then Baba O'Reilly, the greatest song ever written, ever. Uh, I'm One, The Punk and the Godfather, and Drown. That was the Quadrophenia album chunk. Um, and then A Man is a Man and Cry If You Want. Those were also two songs off of uh, It's Hard. Who Are You, Pinball Wizard, uh, they did the see me, see me, feel me thing. So the pinball wizard and see me, feel me would be their their you know Tommy chunk. Uh, then back to Quadrophenia with uh, 515 and Love Rain Over Me. Uh, then there was Long Live Rock, which was just a, a single that they put out. And they wrapped up the main set with uh, Won't Get Fooled Again, which you know was the greatest anthem ever written, right? You know, rock anthem. Their encore had two songs, Naked Eye, which was a song that they did live a lot uh, back in, um, I think it was written at about the time of the Who's Next album, and they, it just didn't get on the album, but it just was something that they liked to play in concerts, so they did that a lot. And the last song they played was Twist and Shout, which we know more for you know it being a Beatles song, but it's, the Beatles were doing a cover song there anyway. So that was the excitement. That was the moment... I watched it, and I just I fell in love with the band. Uh, had to learn as much as I could about them. Just haven't let go of them. The Who and Pete Townsend still still my favorites. I have other bands I really like, obviously, but you know, basically the Rulers, they're awesome. Uh, and it's just what can I say? It just hit me at a time in my life. It really worked, and I just haven't been able to let go of them. And why would I want to? <laughs> um, let's see. What are we at here? I think it's time for me to take my next break, right? Or, is, yes, it's my next break. I think it's time for me to do that. You're listening to Dimland Radio. Hang on, i got to get this set up. You're listening to Dimland Radio on the ZTalk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. I'm your host, Jim, Dr. Jim Fitzsimmons. I'll be back after this break. We hear any competition. You're listening to Z Talk Radio Network. He's endlessly pushing the rock of reason up the hill of paranormal. It's Dr. Dim, and you're listening to Dimland Radio on Z Talk Radio Network. If you don't clean up your room, the Board of Health is going to condemn it. The Board of Health doesn't even know about your room. What's more, 
they don't care. You know, if you keep making that face, it's going to freeze that way. Not unless you're someplace really, really cold. Actually, a lot of the warnings moms hand out are a bit exaggerated. If you don't get your blood pressure checked, you could have high blood pressure, not even know it, and you could die from a stroke. But she's right about that one. Fact is, high blood pressure contributes to 200,000 American deaths each year. And a third of those who have high blood pressure don't know it. If they did, it'd be simple to treat. Call the American Heart Association at 1-800-AHA-USA-1 or visit AmericanHeart.org on the web to learn more. Better still, ask your doctor to check your blood pressure. If you run with those scissors... It's the least you can do. Get him some Z's. Get him some Z's. Get him some Z's. Wake up! Listen to Z Talk Radio on ZTalkRadio.com. Welcome back to Dimland Radio here in the ZTalk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. I'm your host, Jim, Dr. Dimfit Simmons. Ah, what shall I do next? There's a cool thing I wanted to talk about here in this last segment. Um, the cool thing uh, is uh, a news item that uh, came out a little while ago. Uh, here, I'm just give me a moment. I'm trying to call it up. It's a, it's a science item. Oh, science is so awesome. Uh, let's see here. There we go. Okay, uh, headline. This is from NBCNews.com. The headline is, Fossil Footprints Show Humans in North America More Than 21,000 Years Ago. Uh, let's see. Uh, the footprints, the earliest firm evidence for humans in the Americas, show that people must have arrived here before the last ice age. Uh, so let's read the article. Uh, this is by Tom Metcalf. Uh, it uh, posted on the internets on September 23rd, 19, or not 19, 2021. So, uh, you know, a little bit ago. It just takes me a while to get the things, okay? I don't find them right away. Uh, David Bustos heard about the ghost tracks when he first went to White Sands National Park in New Mexico to work as a wildlife scientist in 2005. When the ground was wet enough at certain times of the year, the ghostly footprints would appear on the otherwise blank earth, only to disappear again when it dried out. It wasn't until over 10 years ago, uh, 10 years later, in 2016, that scientists confirmed that the ghost tracks had been made by real people. And it's only now that some of the ancient footprints at White Sands have been dated as the earliest in North America. We've been suspicious of the age for a while, and so now we finally have that it's really exciting. Now that we finally have it, that's really exciting. Uh, Bustos said, 
One of the neat things is that you can see mammoth prints in the layers a meter or so above the human prints. So that just helps to confirm the whole story. The, uh, uh, the footprints at White Sands were dated by examining the seeds of an aquatic plant that once thrived along the shores of the dried up lake. Uh, Rupia serosa, I think is the name of the plant, uh, commonly known as ditch grass. According to research published uh, in the journal Science and co-authored by Bustos, I hope I'm saying his name right, the ancient ditch grass seeds were found in layers of hard earth both above and below the many human footprints at the site, and they were radiocarbon dated to determine their age. The tracks at one location have been revealed as both the earliest known footprints and the oldest firm evidence of humans anywhere in the Americas, showing that people lived there 21,000 to 23,000 years ago, several thousand years earlier than scientists once believed. Now I'm going to pause right here. Now this is where, you know, science is annoying. Science flip-flops. Science keeps changing its mind. No, the evidence dictates where the science goes. And until this was confirmed, until they could find those the seeds and where they were in relationship to these footprints and be able to uh, carbon date, radiocarbon date those seeds, which, which uh, pinpointed uh, the age of the footprints, you know, that makes it strong evidence. And, it's, and it changes where they were. It doesn't mean they were wrong. It just means the evidence, the uh, earlier evidence that they had for how soon we got here, humans got to this part of the world, just had to be adjusted because the information we, that we had before, that scientists had before, didn't account for this, and now they got this new evidence, and that's how science works. It's how we advance. It's how things get better. It's how things get, you know, how things work. Okay, back to the article. <clears throat> it's the earliest unequivocal evidence for humans in the Americas, said the lead author of the study, Matthew Bennett, a professor of environmental and geographic sciences at Bournemouth University in the UK. Fossilized human footprints have now been found throughout the east of the National Park, where the bed of a paleo lake, which is now dry, supplies the gypsum-rich earth that is eroded by the wind to create the enormous white dunes for which the region is famous. Any traces of early human habitation had been disputed because they relied on what seemed to be stone tools that might have formed naturally, Bennett said, or on artifacts that might have moved from their original stratigraphic layers. The footprints, the, oh, I'm sorry, a footprint is a, uh, is a really good unequivocal data point, he said. Uh, that's the importance of this site. We know they were there. The footprints would in turn give greater credibility to other evidence of early humans in the Americas. You can now look at the oldest sites and say, we know they were there during the last glacial maximum. So maybe some of these oldest sites are also reliable, he said. That's uh, Bennett. The term last glacial maximum is how scientists refer to the height of the last ice age, about 20,000 to, 20, to 26,000 years ago. 
It has long been debated whether humans arrived in the Americas by a northern route from uh, Siberia before or after the last glacial maximum, with vast sheets of ice uh, when vast sheets of ice would have made migration along the Pacific coast or through western Canada impossible. The ancient footprints at White Sands answer that question, suggesting they may have arrived up to 30,000 years ago, thousands of years before the height of the Ice Age, Bennett said. White Sands is now mostly a desert, but it was a lush wetland at the time the footprints were made and populated by ma mammoths, ground sloths, uh, bovids, cattle, and uh, wild camels, as well as by the Stone Age humans who hunted them. The footprints, which are intermingled with tracks of the, of the animals, show that people must have lived there for at least 2,000 years. Cornell University archaeologist Thomas Urban, a co-author of the research, said in an email, There are multiple footprint layers spanning a significant amount of time, suggesting a sustained human presence in the area during the last glacial maximum, as opposed to a single event, he said. Urban developed the non-invasive use of ground-penetrating radar to reveal the footprints beneath the surface and show the researchers the best places to excavate. Smaller footprints made by teenagers and children outnumbered those made by adults, Urban said, possibly because they were involved in tasks that involved simple labor instead of skilled tasks like hunting. Their presence is simply part of ordinary life and should be expected, he said. Their activities may have ranged from playing to chores, such as gathering food, water, and raw materials for their hunter-gatherer community. Uh, let's see, geologist Cynthia Lycus Pierce, a Appalachian, or Appalachian State University uh, in North Carolina, who has studied ancient human footprints in Tanzania and wasn't involved in the White Sands research, said it was often difficult to date when fossilized footprints were made, especially when they were pressed into layers of mud, as at White Sands, and not into more easily dated volcanic ash. It's great to see the that this team was able to constrain the date of the footprint formation using carbon date, uh, radiocarbon dates from the layers above and below, she said in an email. Unlike bones or artifacts, footprints are unique in that they recorded fossilized behavior, and their analysis can yield clues about the printmakers. Human footprints give us uh, a glimpse into the lives of our ancestors, and in this case, provide detailed information to their uh, on their day-to-day -day activities and social dynamics, like as Pierce said. Uh, I'll link to that article on the show notes page. You get there by going to dimland.com and clicking on the show notes uh, blog option and you'll find it. Uh, this is the... the if, uh, for me, uh, this is this is more exciting than, um, than actual fossils, fossils of bones, uh, than that kind of fossils, even though that stuff is exciting. Fossils of the animals' skeletons is uh, is exciting. But footprints, fossilized footprints. I think I've mentioned this before. You know, I have this uh, fantasy, if you will, of being able to uh, travel back in time. Now, I have certain rules. It, it's, it's kind of based on what uh, Charles Dickens did in um, A Christmas Carol. 
uh, when Scrooge is brought to the Christmases of his past by the uh, uh, the spirit of Christmas past, the the spirit explains to to him that uh, what they're seeing are just the shadows of what has been. You know, we're just seeing what happened. We're like just we're kind of inside this in, this immersive uh, video in which we can look all around and see what was going on. We can see it, we can hear it, but we can't interfere with it. The people there are unaware of our presence. Uh, there's nothing we can do. You know, I mean, so that's what I think. I, I go back and I witness something that happened in time, and there's no way that I can interfere with it. There's no way I can change the timeline. There's no way I can screw anything up. I'm just watching. I'm, I can watch and hear. I don't want to be able to smell stuff because stuff smelled like shit back then, and <laughs> or might have. Uh, you know, sanitation not being great. Um, and I and I and it's and I you know I can't feel the weather I can't it's, all I can do is see them and I can hear them and I always and I throw in this little bit into my paranormal fantasy that I can understand whatever language is being spoken so if they're cave people and they have their own primitive language or whatever they got whatever they had then I can understand what they're saying to each other if I'm watching you know uh, I don't know if I'm uh, trying to figure out who Jack the Ripper was I can understand the English wait a minute I can already do that anyway. You get the point. Although I would not want to see uh, Jack the Ripper do his deeds. I, that I wouldn't want. I mean, that'd be... I think I'd be too traumatized to see somebody be killed. I wouldn't want to see battles and war. I wouldn't want to see the actual stuff happening uh, because it's just it would be too much. I mean, even though I wouldn't be in danger, just seeing that stuff happen, I, I don't think I could handle it. But anyway, my, my, my thinking is just to go back to that moment, to go back to that bit, that bit of mud... It was just in the right conditions to have somebody walk across it and leave their footprints, and those and those footprints stayed for, in this case, you know, twenty thousand years or more. Is that's awesome? And then to see dinosaur footprints, which is even you know millions of years ago, to just watch it because a fossilized uh, animal, you know, their skeleton, you you might get an impression of their body a little bit, like uh, Archaeopteryx. The uh, the uh, the transition species that's that that's between dinosaurs and birds. I think you can see some impressions of its body, as well as its skeletal structure. I think you can. Or you, there's plants like a leaf will fall on some mud, and leave an impression on the mud, and you know you can see stuff like that. Or you can see trilobites, which are these little horseshoe crab-like creatures that, that were around even before the dinosaurs were around. You can see groupings of them. But the thing is about those kinds of fossils is that is a fossilized death. That's a fossil of death. It's, the, it's where the body ended up. You know, some T-Rex died, fell into some stream, and its body might have been rolled along for a ways and ended up somewhere, and then through... The, uh, the years as it decayed and started to kind of press into the mud, it, you know, bits and pieces of its skeleton might have moved around elsewhere, been, you know, scavengers might have taken parts of it away. You know, you can get, you know, fairly full, complete skeletons, but, you know, it's just, that's where it, and it might not even be where it died, it's just where its body ended up. But when you look at footprints, you're looking at a moment of life. That's when they're saying that you can see their activities and it can help to try to figure out what they would do, what these people were like, just by seeing those footprints. And, you know, and, and to me, if I was able to do that paranormal thing and go back to that moment 
and just just you know, and if I could bring somebody with me, so the the, the two of us could just be watching something. And say, like, why are you bringing me back? What's going on here? So just just watch, just watch, just watch. And then a dinosaur comes walking out from behind some bushes, walks through some mud, and then walks off. And then I say, see those footprints? They're going to fossilize. They're going to be the footprints that we find. I find that exciting. Footprints capture just a couple minutes or a few seconds or, or whatever of, of an actual living event, not of something dying. <clears throat> I think that is way, way cool. Let's see. Oh, <coughs> oh, I'm sorry about that. My throat gets so dry these days. It's the allergy season, and I'm just, uh, so you know what I'm going to have to do? I'm just going to have to say, Good night. Good night, Frau Blucher. Well, I didn't say that. That's from that movie. Um, anyway, uh, you, you know, be skeptical. And extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Uh, you've been listening to Dimland Radio on the ZTalk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. Please wash your hands and wear a mask where you need to and get vaccinated. And if you have been vaccinated, thank you. Uh, I, this is your host, Jim, Dr. Jim Fitzsimmons, reminding you all to sleep with the lights off. check out my show notes at dimland.com. Just click on the blog option and you can email your questions and comments to drdim at dimland.com. That's D-R-D-I-M at dimland.com. And the opening theme song, Ram, is by Theolius and is used with permission. Production of the Z Talk Radio Network. And now a message to our competitors. Thanks. Thanks for, for tuning us in. in. Well, well, I'm going to hell. hell.